I know last week that I astonished you. We covered five verses at once. You probably didn't know what to do with that. So we're going to go back to our old pace, and we're going to cover one verse this morning. Slow it down a little bit. This is a significant verse. We're going to look at verse 11 of the second chapter of Romans this morning, where Paul says, For God does not show favoritism. This is vitally important to understand and to believe. The idea is that God is fair, that God is just. And while we may consciously acknowledge that when we're around one another and so forth, there are going to be times, and certainly there have been in the past and there will be in the future, when we are going to be tempted and Satan is going to blow into our ear in the face of some kind of tragedy, in the face of some kind of dilemma, in the face of some kind of problem, and he's going to say, if God is so good, if he's so kind, if he's so loving, why did he allow that? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been tempted to think those thoughts? If God is good, then why that? If God is so good, and if he's so just then why does he allow millions of people to starve to death in Africa? Awesome question, isn't it? And we are tempted to doubt. You see, Satan will accuse God to us, just like he did back in the garden with Eve. He said, has God really said that you should not eat from any tree in the garden? God wouldn't do that, would he? Not that good, God. And right back in the garden, and ever since, Satan blows in the ears of of not only the world, but the saints to communicate, to try to convince, to deceive, really, to undermine our confidence in the goodness and in the justness of God. He's fair. Now, the context in which Paul says this, remember he said he's talked about judgment, God judging men. He starts in verse 6 and he says that God will will, uh, give to every man according to what he's done. He's going to judge men on the basis of their actions, their deeds in this life. And then he goes on and he, he, he separates out and shows us the two kinds of people, the people who, who really truly love God and are serving him from the appropriate motives, and the people who are not. The, the, uh, the saints and the ain'ts. Remember we called them that last week? And then he said that it's, that it's going to start with the Jew first and then the Gentile. Now a person would be reading that and in, in, in seeing Jew first, Gentile, would seem, it would seem that there would be some partiality, but, but Paul says there is no partiality with God. There is no favoritism. When he says the Jew first, he's only meaning in terms of priority in his plan. The Jews aren't favored over the Gentile, nor is the Gentile favored over the Jew. God treats them both alike. They have different roles to play in his overall plan. They fit in in different places, just like a man fits into God's plan differently than a woman does. God doesn't favor men over women. They just have different roles. The Jews and the Gentiles have different roles. And so Paul emphasizes this fact that there is no favoritism with God in justice or reward. Important to understand that. Remember we talked last week a little bit about what I termed keyhole theology? 
you look through a little keyhole into a room, and you can only see a small portion of what's going on in that room. Isn't that true? We'd be very foolish to make a decision on our, that would affect our life profoundly on the little bit of information we could get just by looking through the keyhole. We would need access to all the visibility to everything that's going on in that room before we made any kind of decision, huh? In other words, the idea is get all the facts, get as much information as possible. And to make a, make a determination on God's character, whether he is just and fair or not, based on just looking at circumstances from the limited perspective we have in this life. We tread on thin ice. We'll get ourselves in trouble. Because very often, on the information we have available to us, because it is so limited, if we make a decision and we end up saying God is unjust, we have no place else to turn. We have no hope, no place else to go, no other person to appeal to. We resort to ourselves again. So we have to be wary of using keyhole theology. We look into that room and we say, Lord, I just see a small portion. We look at a tragedy like the thing that's going on in Africa, we say, Lord, I don't understand all that. I do understand that you call me to participate somehow to help. But I don't understand it all. I know you understand it all. I trust you. I know that you're just. Lord, I've been having thoughts that, that somehow you're unjust. Somehow that's not fair. And while it may not be, it doesn't reflect on your fairness. Difficult, isn't it? Sure. But again, we have to say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I know you and I know you understand it. And I'll rest in you. Vitally important to understand that God is fair, that God is just. And whenever we doubt it, go back to his character. Whenever you have any question that has reference back to God, we always have to start with his character. Go back to who he is. Read through the scriptures. See where the Bible says that God is merciful, that he's kind, that he's patient, that he's tolerant, that he's slow to anger, that he is just. And as we reaffirm those truths... We have confidence to know that the problem must be someplace else. It's not with God. The problem is always with men. The problem is always with Satan behind the scenes. The problem is always with the values of this world that Satan stirs up and lures men away from an appropriate understanding and allegiance to God. If all men were serving God, if all men were loving God and obeying God, you know what? There would be no starvation in Africa. There would not be millions of kids dying. Does that make sense? Sure it does. And so we've got to see that God is fair and God is just. I looked up in the concordance as I was studying this week, I just looked up the word just and justice. If you have a concordance at home, and if you don't have one, you ought to buy one. A concordance is a book that has every word in the Bible. 
in the Old and the New Testament. And if, you're, you know, if you have this kind of verse in your mind, but you don't know where it is, and you want to look it up, you want to find where it's at, if, but you've got one word in the verse, you can go look up that word, and you'll find the verse, and it'll list it where it is, and you can go right to the Bible to read it. So concordance is a very, very valuable tool when you're studying and reading the Bible. But I was looking up these words in the Bible, and I was amazed at how many times the word just and the word justice were listed. And you just read down through them. And how many times the Bible says, God is just. It's overwhelming. It's exciting. As God was teaching Israel in the Old Testament, that was one of the major considerations that he emphasized in his relationship with Israel, that they must be just. And indeed, the scriptures indict Israel for their injustice. And the problem was that their injustice so incited God against them because it's that very injustice that goes contrary to his nature. But I picked out just a couple of verses. I'm going to just read them to you. And I've written the references in your notes, and you can look them up later. Certainly look up others and do a little Bible study on justice and see what the scriptures have to say. And you'll just be awestruck by the references that the Bible gives as you look them up. Extensive references. But in Leviticus, the 19th chapter, the 15th verse, listen to what God writes. This is the law to Israel. He says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. In Deuteronomy, the 16th chapter, verses 19 and 20, he says, Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eye of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Psalm 82, verse 2, the psalmist writes, How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? In Proverbs 17, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. Just examples of the importance of justice and fairness in God's eyes. A reflection of his very nature. And as we have talked about these very things, I want to share with you just some thoughts on, on salvation. The Bible teaches us that salvation is offered to all men. It's offered to every person, regardless of their station in life, regardless of their background, regardless of their education, their training, their age, anything at all. Salvation is a free gift. It was offered to the thief on the cross as well as to the Pharisee. It was offered to the high and to the low, to the intelligent and to the ignorant. Suppose God were to 
make salvation contingent on some pre-existing condition in a person's life. Suppose that you had to have um, a master's degree to qualify for salvation. Would that be just? Would that be fair? No, it's not. Suppose that you had to have uh, an income of minimum thirty-seven five. If you made thirty-six thousand four hundred ninety-five dollars, you couldn't get in. Is that just? No, it's not, is it? It's not fair. What if you were raised in a strongly moral and disciplined home, and you were you were taught morals? not necessarily a Christian, but you were, you were given a strong moral standard to live by. And so you were a very upright moral individual. What if that were the standard? What about all the people who weren't raised that way? What about the, the undisciplined? Is that fair to them that they don't qualify? No, that's not fair. That's not just. God is just and fair. He shows no partiality, no favoritism. He offers salvation to all men. He says to the whole human race, I will not look at where you have been. It makes no difference to me how low you have sunk in sin or how you've lived according to your own or men's standards. I will not take note of your arrogance I will not take note of your pride. I will not take note even of the filth of your life. I will not look at what you call evil. I will not look at what you call good. He says, I will bring you all to the gate and treat you as equal. What an exciting thought. God doesn't look at any person's life and bring them to that gate on the basis of any qualification. He treats every person as equal. There may be one person sitting here this morning who feels like they're not worthy to come to God until they clean up their life, and then they're worthy. God says, no, you come just as you are, and let me clean up your life. Let me do a wondrous thing in you that you cannot do. Boy, isn't that freeing? It certainly is. God says, I will bring you all to the gate and treat you as equal. I will ask you to admit that your human efforts and attainments must be discarded. You have nothing to commend you. So just lay it all aside. And come with empty hands of faith, saying, Lord, I have nothing. I'm dependent on you. I'm stripped naked. Just admit that though you may have everything that pleases your neighbor, that you have nothing that pleases me. Indeed, Isaiah says that your works are as filthy rags. I want to take those filthy rags off you, and I want, you, I want to clothe you in brand new righteous robes. He says, if you'll do these things, if you'll admit these things and come to me, 
then I will do everything for you. And I will give you a beautiful righteousness, free, and clothe you in a new glory, and restore your life, and strengthen you, and give you new tasks to do, in which you can glory. Exciting, huh? Free gift to everybody. God is not partial. That's with salvation alone. He invites all men to come just as they are. And then as we look at God's judgment in the second chapter, now remember, he is, he's pronouncing judgment on all men. The first chapter, the second half of the first chapter, he pronounces judgment on the obvious sinners. And then in the second chapter, he pronounces judgment on the not-so-obvious sinners the people who are self-righteous and upright, who are trusting in their own goodness, who, while maybe not sinning in obvious ways as the people in the first chapter that Paul has indicted, they would stand and condemn and criticize, and if not verbally, certainly quietly in their own thinking, they would condemn those people. They would agree with Paul and say, yes, Paul, those people deserve God's wrath and anger. Paul turns to them and says, you, you therefore have no excuse yourself. You who pass judgment on the other person, because when you pass judgment on them, you're condemning yourself because you do the same things. And this whole section on into the third chapter, Paul is gathering all men, and he's going to point to the, that, that 20th verse, that 19th verse, that third chapter, and says, that the whole world is accountable to God, that all men are under God's judgment. Exciting, huh? But the passage that we have under study this past week or two has to deal with God's fairness in judging men, that he's not unfair. He has, he has offered salvation to all men without partiality. And his judgment is also without partiality. To those who receive Christ, their works are not sufficient to gain them salvation. Remember, we said last week that works, that good deeds are not a cause of salvation, but a consequence of salvation. We saw that the uh, two kinds of people last week. The people who do good works and their motivation to do them is not for their own personal gratification, it's not because of peer pressure, it's not because it makes them feel better. Their motivation for doing works is what? Glory and honor and immortality. It makes all the difference in the world. And so God is going to judge men according to their works. He's going to judge them on the basis of objective criteria. First, he says with on the basis of their knowledge. And all men have knowledge of a standard, don't they? Is there anybody in this room who has never, and I want to ask you for a show of hands, anybody in this room never criticized another person? Is there anybody in this room who has lived up to every standard that you know of, that you've criticized other people on the basis of? We all fall short. So we have knowledge of what's right. We have knowledge of God's standard. 
And when we criticize other people, we give evidence that we have knowledge of what's true and right. And yet we ourselves don't live up to that same standard. Hence, we are accountable. And God will judge us on the, on the basis of our knowledge of what's right. He'll also judge us on the basis of what's true. True about our life. We can't lie to God. Because why? He looks into the heart. He knows exactly what's going on in every person's life. While we may lie to other people, why we may make other people think something is true about us, about us when it's not, God knows the truth, doesn't he? And so he'll judge us on the basis of the truth, and indeed, he'll use this as a standard. This book. God also judges men on the basis of their guilt, and the guilt in particular is the guilt of showing contempt for the riches of God's kindness. You know, I, I'm on this jag about people say, how are you? And I say what? Thankful. Thankful. You know, this is just becoming more and more and more visible to me in my own life. I'm learning that when I get up first thing in the morning, say, God, thank you. <laughs> now, first, it was, it was just an exercise of discipline, just making myself do it. But the more I do it, the more I'm understanding how much I do mean it. And the more passion is in it. And throughout the day, I'll take a moment, I'll say, God, thank you. When I go to bed at night, God, thank you. Thank you for what? Thank you for the riches of your kindness to me today. You let me live another day. You gave me breath in my body. You allowed me another day to minister, to be involved in people's lives. You allowed me another day to have my wife and my son by my side. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the riches of your kindness. Oh, Lord, thank you for tolerating me. Lord, thank you for your patience with me. Have you ever marveled at God's patience with us? Incredible. People every day trample on God's kindness, don't they? Trample on his patience. They walk all over his name. Not one thought to sing thank you. Just cruising through life, taking advantage of every good thing provided without one word of thanks. You know, in my mind, the greatest sin is the sin of ingratitude. How, do you, how, does it, how does it affect you? How do you feel when, when you've extended yourself, overextended yourself, gone the limit with people to provide for them, to help them, to make their life better, to minister to them, and not one word of thanks? Is that one of our favorite things? Stimulates in us great warmth and joy. <laughs> No, we find ourselves kind of stomping off and didn't even say thank you. The least they could have done is say thank you. Ingratitude is a horrible thing, isn't it? And yet you see how the whole human race, and even sometimes great segments of the church, 
or without thanks. You know, I'm committed that this congregation be a thankful congregation. That every time we turn around, we're saying, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. An exciting prospect, isn't it? Sure it is. Do you know that God would not put up with the insubordination, or we wouldn't put up with the insubordination that God puts up with? You ever thought about that? How many of you have children? Ah, lots of you, right? Some of you are about to have them. How do you feel inside when your little one, after giving some instruction, your little one just says, no! <laughs> you know, you just expect them to do what you say, right? And you walk in away and they hear a, no! <laughs> what did you say? Are you overcome with love? Joy? No. And yet, you see, God puts up with our incredible insubordination, doesn't he? Oh, same. The Spirit prompts us. We say, no. The Spirit says, go do this. No. Man. And just because the earth doesn't open up and swallow us, or the heavens don't part and lightning come down and strike us dead, or we don't fall over like Ananias and Sapphira did in the fifth chapter of Acts. Men just blithely go on their way saying, no. No thanks, no praise. As if it's okay. As if it's no big deal because something doesn't happen immediately. Awesome, isn't it? God will judge men, and is he just to judge men on their contempt for his kindness? Yes, he's very just, very fair. He's been so gracious to men. But there's going to come a day when all men are going to stand before the bema, the judgment seat, or the great white throne. And God is going to reel off a picture of their life and show the graciousness and how they had contempt. And there's no way that that person can stand there and say, but, but, but. And God is going to say no buts about it. Judgment is going to fall. It doesn't end there. God is going to judge men, as we said earlier, on the basis of what? Their deeds. Now remember, deeds are not a cause of salvation. They are a consequence of salvation. The deeds that are pleasing. We made a, a reference last week to Cain and Abel. Do you remember that? Cain and Abel's sacrifice. The writer to the Hebrews says that, that Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's. Why? Well, because apparently it was a prescribed sacrifice from God. This is the way to do it. That Cain brought the work of his hands and said, well, there you go, God. God. That ought to be sufficient. And Abel brought what? The lamb. The sacrifice that God had indicated, apparently. And so Cain's sacrifice was despised. If Cain had offered the lamb and then brought the work of his hands, the work of his hands would have been, would have been acceptable then. 
but not before. Only after, on the foundation of the sacrifice, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, the sacrifice, the foundation which Christ has laid down. On that, then, do we build our works. Now, for the non-Christian, for the non-believer who has all these good works, for the self-righteous individual who brings these works at that time of judgment, they are unacceptable to God because they're not on the foundation of Christ. For the believer, for the person who's put their faith in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians, the second chapter, we are not saved by good works, that our salvation is a free gift of God, not of works that any man should boast. Verse 10, he says, but we have been saved unto good works. We're saved to do good works. And it's those works that we do that those works are going to be judged. They're going to be judged to see if they are made of, what, wood, hay, and stubble, or gold and silver and precious stones. They're going to be tossed into the fire. They're going to be tested to see what lasts. What kind of good works do we do as believers? Some of you are working with the kids and working with the kids from your heart. That's a good work. Another good work, and this is a really good one. Get this one. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a good work. Do you know that? Now, as I say this, the Holy Spirit's convicting me too. So, you know, we do lots of marriage counseling in our church and probably too much. And I'm convinced the reason we do so much marriage counseling is that husbands are not loving their wives as Christ loved the church. They're not doing good works. They're saved. But they're not doing the good work of loving their wife. Now, gals, you're not getting off the hook either. Part of the problem with our marriage counseling situation is not only is the husbands aren't loving the wives, is the wives aren't respecting the husbands. Well, there's not much to respect in that guy. There's one thing, and you can start there. Proverbs 21 says, you know, there's nothing worse than a contentious and vexatious woman. Contentious means one who is always disputing. Always disputing. Always arguing. And the contentiousness leads to vexatiousness, and vexatious means to give a hard time to. The opposite of contentious and vexatious, Peter spells out in his first epistle, is, guess what? Meek or gentle and quiet-spirited. Isn't that a lovely thought? Gentle and quiet-spirited. That's how women are to be. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you're a doormat? No. Does that mean you can't say anything? No. It means that you are so focused in on the Lord and so trusting of Him that you have a gentle spirit, that you have a deep sense of calm, inner tranquility, in which nothing that that clown does that you're married to ruffles you. <laughs> that you do not make it your goal to change him, 
Women always do that, don't they? Boy, I'm going to marry him. Boy, I'm going to change him. His mother didn't raise him right. I'm going to straighten him up right now. There isn't a woman alive that doesn't think that. But you see, that's the problem. Well, he doesn't love me like Christ loved the church. Well, what about you? Are you driving him away with your contentiousness and vexatiousness, or are you drawing him with your gentle and quiet spirit? Are you looking at him to minister to him or to change him? These are the kinds of good works that we can begin to do. What about children? Children. A description of that which God gives in contrast to the reproach of men. We're not really honored, though we seek after honor here in this life. Isn't that true? We don't really get it. But God promises honor as part of the reward. Think with me about these words of Jesus. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Do you long to hear those words? Boy, I do. I do. I don't want to think that when I get there that all the stuff I've done is going to be burned up. It's going to be worthless. And then I'm not going to hear those words. And I have to be reminding myself that I'm not seeking after the honor of men, but that I'm working for God's honor. I'm working to hear those words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You'll live a long life, and it will go well with you. Now, for those of us that were disobedient, that didn't obey our parents, that were raised thinking foolishly that we should get our own way rather than thinking with wisdom. It hasn't gone well with us. We've had a frustrating and a hurtful life. We've made some very costly mistakes. And so while you still have chance, stop the process, start doing what's right so that you can at least live a long life. Exciting, huh? Doing good works. And, I mean, the Bible goes on and on and on. The Bible says what? Uh, if your enemy is hungry, ignore him. Make him suffer. He deserves it, right? No. If your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, what? Give him something to drink. God, if I do that, don't you know they'll take advantage of me? Who's in charge? Me or you? Well, that's right. You are God. <laughs> then do it. Well, if I do that, he'll probably get saved. That's the idea. <laughs> good works. And good works emanate from a life that's been changed, a life and a heart that's motivated for glory and honor and immortality. God, I want you to be glorified. No other motive is strong enough to do these things, is it? Not our own selfish wants. Not our own ego needs. To share in God's honor and his glory and, and life eternal. Those are the only proper motives, and those are the motives of a person who is transformed. That's a heavenly, Godward attitude. God gives us. 
And so God will judge men according to their deeds. Is he just? Yes. Totally just. Do you know that man's standards and God's are not the same? God's standards are totally different from men's. Men always look on the outward appearance, don't they? There's a passage in uh, 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter. You might want to just turn there real quickly with me and look at it. The setting, real quickly, is one of Samuel, the prophet, who has anointed uh, King Saul as the first human king over the nation of Israel. And now Saul has uh, been disobedient to the Lord, and God has called Samuel to fill his horn with oil and go to the house of Jesse and anoint the new king. He doesn't know yet know who this new king is. But he gets up there, and verse 6 of the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel says that when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and this is the oldest son of Jesse, who had several sons. And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. This guy is magnificent. Look at this guy. Dynamite. It's like J. Agajanian. Big, strong, handsome, wealthy. <laughs> Stop. You can't have said enough, right? Surely this man is the Lord's anointed, right? Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his, what, appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. We're always impressed with men, aren't we? You know? We're always impressed with how they look and how they carry themselves and stature and all these. Do you know the Apostle Paul was a little tiny guy, we think, spindly little character, kind of balding, long nose. He had this exudate that constantly flowed out of his eyes. It made him extremely unattractive to look upon. He says to the Corinthians, he says, you know, I, when I came to talk to you guys, I didn't talk so good. You know, we want people to be erudite and handsome and all these magnificent things that appeal to us. And that's not exactly what God looks at. He says, the Lord does not look at the thing man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God doesn't care so much about the packaging. He's more concerned about the contents inside the packaging. His standards are not ours. There's another passage in Matthew. Look at this one. This is really good. Matthew, the 19th chapter. It's one verse, but it's well worth our all looking at it. The 19th chapter of Matthew and the 30th verse. Now listen to this. This is absolutely shocking. He says, but many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. Kind of different the way we set it up, huh? We hustle to be first. We're all jostling to get into position. 
young men and women come and they'll often say in the congregation, well, I think God's called me to be a pastor. I say, oh, that's wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. I'm called to teach. Ooh, that's glorious. And I'm all excited for him. Then I say, well, now listen. Here's what you do. Because here's the path to leadership. I want you to go and I want you to get into a mini church and I want you to take the lowest place you can find. And I want you to take that lowest seat and I want you to serve from that lowest seat. I want you to run out into the mini church, find a need, fill it, and then run back to your lowest seat and don't let anybody see you. Don't point to yourself. Don't say, look what I did. Strive to be last. Take the lowest seat. And if God has indeed called you to minister, to pastor, and to teach, he will raise you up. No man needs to raise you up. God will do it. And indeed, we have a man in our congregation who's doing that very thing. He came to me. He said, you know, he said, I'm just graduated from Fuller Seminary. I said, whew, that's exciting. He said, and I want to be on the staff. I said, whew, that's exciting too. He said, when can I start? Uh, <laughs> and I described to him the path to leadership. And you know, he has taken a job on our steward staff. That means he's one of the janitors. Seminary graduate, master's degree, cleans toilets. Isn't that exciting? He came to me the other day, and he said, you know, I'm so thankful for what you told me. He said, I love my job. Exciting, huh? Take the lowest seat. The last will be first, rather than striving for it to be up front. One last verse. This is exciting. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. This is one of my favorite. This speaks loudly to me, so I want to share it with you. The 26th verse of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Verse 27, this gets me. But God chose the foolish things of the world. I said, wait a minute, God. I thought I was pretty hot. He said, well, now you know the truth. You weren't any big deal. You are really one of the foolish things in the world, and I called you to do my work. Kind of humbled me. Continues to do so. To shame the wise, he says, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God doesn't look out there and say, well, you know, that's a pretty sharp guy over there. I'm going to get that guy in my work. I could use him. God doesn't look at the packaging. He doesn't show favoritism on the basis of any kind of external qualification. He's fair and he's just. He looks into a man's heart, looks into a woman's heart, what's really there. And those are the people that he calls. Those are the people that he uses. Exciting, huh? Is God fair? Is he just? Yes. If you read in Isaiah, the 14th chapter, describes the fall of Satan. Indeed, Satan, the most, before he's named Satan, the old King James calls him Lucifer. 
sun of the morning, the morning star, apparently the most beautiful of all of God's created beings, stood at the very throne of God, one of the mighty cherubim, powerful, intelligent, beautiful, and yet all those qualifications, he sinned against God and God did not spare him. God judged him. He's just. In that context, in that very same passage, all the, the mighty of the world are raised up in hell to meet Satan at his fall. You read about it in the 14th chapter. God is just and he's fair. He shows no favoritism. All men are treated the same. God will judge with justice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you are gracious to us. We thank you that you're compassionate. Lord, most of all, we thank you that you are just and fair. That no person has any advantage over any other person because of their birth, their abilities, their talents, their gifts. But the Lord, you treat each one of us the same. Lord, help us to draw comfort from that. Help us to see, Lord, that you look at all of us the same way. That you invite all of us to come on the same basis. That none of us has anything to give to you except our willing hearts. Lord, we pray this morning that you would strengthen all of us with this understanding. Lord, this is not new. We've known this. Lord, it bears repeating. It's a powerful truth. Thank you, God. Thank you. We praise your name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.